Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir here in Washington, D.C. with my sister, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Our Strength. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Yeah. And boy, do we have some treats today, both for ourselves and for our listeners. We have Elise Smith from Winnie's Bakery. Elise, we are so glad to have you here. We saw each other recently at a Share Our Strength we did. dinner for the No Kid Hungry campaign. Um, and we're so grateful that you've been a supporter and that you're on Add Passion and Stir. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. And Leslie Crutchfield, we only go back mm, 25 years, right? Something Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Give or take a decade. Give or take a decade? <laughs> no, it's, don't tell me it's longer than 25. But anyhow, Leslie is the author of three books, the newest being How Change Happens, Why Some Social Movements Succeed While Others Don't. Leslie, I have heard so much about this book already. Mine is a little bit dog-eared, but um, it just seems like if you're a nonprofit trying to figure out how to get to the next level and really have a powerful impact. Uh, this has become the book to read, so congratulations. Thank you. Thanks for being here. I'm really glad to be here. Well, let's start with you. How did you become a baker? I know that you had a maternal grandmother, I Winnie, who mm -hmm. your bakery's named after, that was a big, big influence. So my introduction was entirely by her. She had her own place called Genie's when I was a kid. And where was it? In PG County. Okay, here in, and, uh, in the Washington, uh, D.C. area. Yeah, and I was just always so impressed with everything she was doing. She also worked for the Park and Recs Association. She taught uh, floral classes, like floral design and things like that. And wherever she went, she always either was bringing something sweet or was going to pick up something to bake something. And uh, I have this, like, one photo in particular that I love to show people because when I say that I was always glued at her hip, people don't really understand how serious I am. I was, there's she a photo. She near you or with you? No, just she was constantly there. She was just, yeah. like, this cool grandma who would pop up out of nowhere and be like, let's bake cookies. And, and was she, like, an older grandmother or a younger grandmother? She was a mid-grandmother. She passed. She was about to be 70. When I was 15. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she was in her 50s, 60s growing mm -hmm. up with me. But I, I just loved everything. But that one photo, I had been sitting on her lap and she was going to be making apple pie. And so she needed space in front of her. And so she sat me. I remember very specifically her saying, this is this is your space, baby. And she sat me to the side. And then... Uh, I guess that wasn't close enough. So on the photo, I'm literally leaned in on her, and she's chopping apples. So great memory. Yeah, yeah. It, it was. That was kind of the beginning for me, and then it was a long and windy road from there. You were telling me you started out at community college and ended up at Gallaudet. I did. Yeah. So I went to CCBC. I went to the Catonsville campus. CCBC is. So it's Community College, Baltimore County. Got it. Okay. And uh, I started out there. And it was going really well. And I was in the interpreting program. And I am now legally hard of hearing. But at the time, I just had a passion for the language and the culture. And so I was introduced to it back when I was in high school. And I thought that that would be a really great endeavor to get into. I really enjoyed the program. And so I followed up by going to Gallaudet, starting out with a summer intensive. And that really set the passion for it on fire. And then fast forward now, maybe two years ago, I started to lose my hearing. And I have this sneaky little hearing aid that most people don't even see. Yeah, very hard to see. And uh, and you know why you started to lose your hearing? Is it a hereditary thing? or No, uh, I have something called intracranial hypertension. So I just had extra fluid. And the pressure was basically killing the nerves in my ear. So I first was losing high frequency. That's the main bulk of like my hearing loss. And then it has progressed uh, sense, but 
I'm doing okay. I got my little road dog right there. Yeah. <laughs> and it does its job very, very well. But it's kept me really immersed in the, I mean, I have a real place in that community now without this hearing aid. It's like a 40% chance I will understand my surroundings by mm-hmm. just using my hearing. Mm-hmm. So, And then after school, I was just really kind of, I wasn't floundering, but my parents they were noticing that my passions were really in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so like all great millennials, I wasted my parents' money on <laughs> a collegiate <laughs> education and said that I wanted to become a pastry chef. But I'm one of those lucky ones where my family is very, very supportive. And so, you know, they always had the saying, you know, show me a pattern. And I guess I've been showing them I was very serious about it. And so I decided to start my business. Uh, I had been baking all through college anyway. And it just seemed like the next logical move because uh, it is not a cheap hobby. No. And, yeah, uh, it's true. you know, when you don't have income in your 20s, it's not cute to say you have hobbies that take up your entire day. And you started Winnie's Bakery in 2012? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was 22. That's when I formally got everything in order. And I think I just, I just knew I wanted to do something for the rest of my life where I got to be in the kitchen. Yep. I just I wanted to make food and share food in my medium happens to be sweets, but I love cooking and, and, you know, it's full capacity. There is something like a meticulous calm to baking that I really enjoy. Mm. I think cooking is more of like a free wildling type experience, like just explore and go with the flow. But like baking, you can kind of count on this particular action will render this specific outcome. And I like that. It's a formula and you follow it. Yeah. Yeah. Just a bit. There's room for play, but I I like to think like it never lets me down. What does that say about me? But (laughs) I I enjoy that aspect very Um, much. uh, Elise, you talked about um, just almost as you described it, there's like an intimacy to baking and Mm -hmm. there's a healing process. It's almost therapeutic for you. What do you actually, what are you actually doing when you're baking and what's it making you feel inside? It's very cathartic. Um, well, my first thoughts whenever I step in the kitchen to bake something are always, I'm always flooded with memories of my grandmother. And then after that, I really try and center what I'm feeling about because I'm a big believer in we channel our energy into everything. And so if I'm angry, I like to go for a walk. I never like to step into the kitchen angry. That results never in anything good, you don't have a level nothing, head. Nothing you, good can come of that. No. <laughs> no. Um, and so normally what I'm doing is I'm setting everything up. I'm getting everything in its place. And I'm always very judicious. Um, dry ingredients on the left, wet mixtures on the right. And uh, I'm always surveying and looking and, and taking stock of everything that I'm about to kind of dive into. And, uh, and then I get to work. And then I watch it go. And it's kind of like an internal clock. I have got the best sense of time. I can tell within 15 seconds when something needs to stop or when something is about to go off. I don't really even need timers, but it is the best interest that I have them. And, uh, you know, I think when I approach like bread, I, for example, like brioche, um, it's pretty simple. It's it's you literally just heat the milk 
and you do it over like a medium low heat and you let that get to about like 110, 115 degrees and then you set that aside and then you introduce your sugars and then you introduce your yeast and you let them marry together and kind of get all puffed up and get friendly as I like to say and then you bring in your emulsifier, you bring in your eggs and you let them sit and then you add in your dry ingredients. You get your salt, you get your a teeny bit more sugar perhaps, and you get your flour. And when you put that all in together, it is a very balanced kind of wave if I think about it. You have your dough hook going and then you have your wet mixture in and then you're letting it get together and gather and you'll see it coming together. And then you introduce a little fat. You need some fat. So you pop in your butter. And you're putting that in and portioned, kind of seeing it transform from this kind of tacky, sort of pasty-looking mixture. And it's really starting to form. And that's when I start to feel this real sense of something calm. This because meticulous I, calm. Yes, because you kind of see the end. You see what the result is going to be. It is coming together. It is forming that teeny ball at the end of the dough hook. And, you know, once that's done, you let it go and you let it usually go for about five minutes and I can step back and kind of take stock. Everything's pretty much done. From there, it's left to rise and proof. You know, you're going to form it into a ball, but then you let it go. And that's normally, by then, I've worked out whatever it is. By then, I have done the hard work of being honest with myself about whatever it is that I need to work through and I can finally take a step back and take a deep breath and just let it go from there I'm done I don't need to revisit it I don't need to rehash it I have bread to focus on now I think that sigh that you just let out (laughs) describes it all that's probably exactly how you feel right like yeah it really is like I just I can focus on this now. And if it, and occasionally I can't really even uh, articulate or, or express even to myself what it is I'm feeling. So then having this task, this tangible thing that I can deal with, that I can manage, I can control, it is a very, it's a very reassuring thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is something Perfect. that I can count on. Perfect. Thank yeah. you. There's a lot of parallels between baking and writing. Yeah. I think I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it's very cathartic. You That's know, how I work things out. Sitting sure. down to yeah. write a chapter um, or an article, it's so freeing to the, the thing. Probably a lot like baking with writing, you need a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Like if I don't have a four-hour time block that's not interrupted, yes, because mm-hmm. you have to get it's when you have to get into the creative mode, and you're thinking and. You can have an outline, right? You mm-hmm. can almost like a recipe, mm-hmm. but putting words together, putting words to paper is a yes. very active process. There's no real recipe to follow, yeah. you know? Um, so you then you meander. You meander, you make you some to. mistakes, you try things out, and then, you know, eventually it comes together and you feel, I don't know if reassuring is what I get out of writing, but mm-hmm. I feel satisfied yeah, that yeah. something took shape mm-hmm. and I said it the way I thought it should be said whatever yeah. i'm describing and and it's so fulfilling unlike like a regular day at the office i don't know you're answering emails you're having meetings mm-hmm. you're being inspired but it's it's sort of scattered and right. this is something that's very focused and 
and you have this end product and it's very it's very cathartic would you agree that like you can't rush the process either like i cannot oh for sure touch that dough until it's ready and you can't finish that chapter until whatever it is that you needed to say or whatever you feel will be the finishing touch is said no it's so true it's i we we were talking about having babies and writing books um <laughs> i guess i'm the only one here that's done both and um you know what's harder people have said actually writing books is a lot mm-hmm. harder than than having babies in my opinion because mm-hmm. at the end of the day when you're going to have a child the mm-hmm. child comes yeah. like you you it's not in your control right yeah. it's completely not I'm in gonna, your control i'm going to try that out on rosemary yeah. and see, what, see, <laughs> see if she agrees rosemary. i have a feeling but she like may with have a to. book you have to will it and you can also not write it i don't know if bakers get baker's block but writers get oh, writer's yes. block and you you can't figure it out and, yeah. and you get stuck and so you have to set it aside and come later and if you're a procrastinator it yeah. might not ever get done many a recipe on the cutting room floor if you will less um, meticulous calm I wouldn't say meticulous calm when I think of Leslie Crutchfield I think of more <laughs> intensity um, but tell us you know actually you and I met when you were involved in a, a very very early stage writing project a magazine actually called who cares which was pretty cool talk about how you got to be doing what you're doing now I love the idea of meticulous calm. I do too. I hope that comes to my life someday. I I wrote it down. I'm I'm hanging on to that one. I have three little kids, age 6, 11, and 13, so there's no calm or meticulous in my life right now. Oh, wow. Props for being here. And you're the most prepared out of all of us. (laughs) Let's see. So when I met you, Billy, I was already on a journey that I think started when I dropped out of college momentarily and had taken... A different, where, where were we in school at the time? So I was at Harvard College mm-hmm. and had decided that being in the ivory tower and being in a very high, kind of high-pressure academic environment wasn't really fulfilling me. And so I went actually to live in West Africa, and I did a volunteer project that's kind of like the Peace Corps. It's called Crossroads Africa, and I was living yep. in the Gambia, which is in West Africa. And to go on that trip, you had to raise money to send yourself to get... There and you went with a group of Americans and you worked with local government agents that kind of helped you integrate into a village and do agricultural development kinds of projects and um, which sounds very high-minded but it meant like moving rocks out of the field into a gully to stop the water from washing everything out so it was pretty basic work but to go on this trip I needed to raise some money to send myself so I went to my local church got a grant, went to the local Rotary Club of Wayne, Pennsylvania, and they very generously gave a fellowship. And then I had the idea of writing about that trip. So I went to the Wayne and Suburban Times and got a freelance gig to write a column out of Africa. It was 10 cents a word. (laughs) So I tried to write a lot of words (laughs) while I was there. This was in the kind of mid 1980s. So unless was it a one year program or it was just for the summer to summer. Okay. So I ended up writing about this experience of being this kind of white middle class suburban girl from America living in this totally different culture and experiencing different food, different politics, different economy, different, different everything. And I loved it. And, and in that process, I fell in love with writing and I've always kind of been threading this needle between writing and making an impact, writing and social change. And it's taken all these different kind of expressions over the course of my life. So when I got back from Africa, I 
did go back to school and graduated late. But the serendipity of that, you know, they say one door closes, another opens. So a lot of my friends had graduated. But then Heather, one of my co-founders of the magazine that Billy talked about, and Chloe, so a couple of my best friends, had also taken time off from college. And Chloe had lived in a Tibetan and taught English in Tibet. And Heather had been living in France on a rotary um, scholarship herself. And so we all came together in our last year of college and started a magazine called There and Back, Notes from Abroad. And we wrote stories and essays and we had photography. And it was all about gathering from our peers, like their experiences of being, you know, outside of this known world and, and sharing that. And so then I fell in love with writing and editing and magazines and photography and came to Washington, D.C., and I graduated in 1991 from college. So my first job out of college was at National Geographic Magazine, which is right up Pennsylvania Avenue from where we're sitting, and had this magical experience of being around all these writers and photographers, and then this horrible personal experience of being their assistant. So I didn't get to go out on assignment, or you know, I was getting their visas so they could go to Patagonia and trek around and write about the environment. So, so that, for me, didn't last long. And then I met Billy. And Debbie. Well, we had a mutual friend, I think. I think Ed Cohen. Did Ed Cohen introduce us? Or I'm trying to remember how we met each other. But we ended up kind of at Share Strength incubating this uh, magazine, this next magazine project. The person who gets all the credit and the glory for that happening is actually Kathy Calvin. Oh, love that. So who Kathy, was, who was... Our Ka- very first podcast episode, Brad Passion and Stir, was Kathy Calvin and Jose Andreas. Yeah, so Kathy and she was put us together. She was running editorial at US News and World Report. So this is a funny story for the women in the room. So I was loving being at National Geographic but miserable in my low-level administrative job and thinking I want to be out on assignment writing and editing these amazing, you know, documentaries, but I was only in my early 20s. So I thought I'm going to go get a writing job somewhere and I started contacting all the newspapers and magazines around D.C. And I didn't know anybody at U.S. News Report, but I was looking at the masthead because back in the old ages, we used to read paper magazines. And on the masthead, a woman named Kathy Bushkin was listed, and she was the highest-ranking woman on the masthead. And you so, went after so her. So I called her, and I thought, <laughs> she's a woman, I'm a woman. Well, she'll <laughs> take my call, which, looking back, was really naive. But, but it worked. <laughs> And back then there was no email, so you you called. Right. Am I right about this? Did you introduce us to Chuck Schofield? Yeah, Chuck, Chuck was, was my first intern. Worked for you, and that was one of the best gifts you ever could have brought us. I mean, he's still with us. What twenty Chuck's years now later, running our executive vice our, president, yeah, running our right. whole oh, No wow. Kid Hungry campaign. So I love Chuck. Yeah, right. he, was, well, he, he was volunteering with Mother Teresa. I was going to say he's probably came to you because of his experience in India. Yeah. And wow. then he loved writing, yep. and so he got to do some articles and uh, work with us when he was just getting on his feet back here in Washington. I'm sorry? What? <laughs> Who are you people? <laughs> you we're connected to everybody, Mother, even Mother Teresa. We're a degree, away from, right. a degree of separation from Mother anybody. Teresa. I'm not sure I arrived at the, the right place. You guys do know I just bake pastry, right? <laughs> I oh just my write gosh. books. I'm... I am absolutely enamored with your history. Please go. (laughs) That's a great history. So then, so Kathy was on your board. board, correct. And she didn't have a job for me. But she said, I know this great organization, Share a Strength, and they care a lot about social issues. And Billy, you had just gotten into like Donna Ferrato and all the photography that she was doing. And you had a newsletter that you were putting out. You have a good memory. 
Yeah. And so, and then we connected around that. And then you were also on the board of this thing called Echo and Green. Right. It's very cool. They give startup funding to social entrepreneurs that have an idea to change the world. Um, Van Jones was one of the early Echo and Green fellows. At that time, he was starting Books Not Bars and the Ella Baker Center for Civil Rights out in California. Mm. Um, and now he's doing a lot of commentary around social justice, social justice civic dialogue. He's got a show on CNN. Yeah. And um, anyway, Echo and Green was funding all these amazing early stage social entrepreneurs. So Wendy Kopp was launching Teach for America at this time. Um, Michael Brown and Alan Casey were launching City Year and you, Vanessa Kirsch was launching Public Allies. And so all these Gen X activists were launching organizations that were trying to you know, reform the education system or create a new ethic of service in this country and all of these amazing ideas. And so Billy and Ed, got together and gave a little startup funding so we could start a magazine to kind of capture the zeitgeist of all these Gen Xers that were trying to find ways to change the world. And this was at the beginning of now what we know of as the social entrepreneurship and social enterprise movement where you're trying to be entrepreneurial, use you know business principles as well as classic activism and protest to try and move things along. So anyway, so that's how, they, that's they were, how we met. They were ahead of their time, probably, echoing green, right? Because oh, that ahead. was... Now there are a lot of, you know, I, I feel like there are a lot of foundations and other funds that, that seed, you know, ideas and organizations. But boy, that was, that was what? It was 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah. they were and the first 30, in the Or US. 30. And they funded a lot of the, as yeah. Leslie described, a lot of what has become the kind of the brand name, you know, nonprofits of this generation and social justice social movements. Yeah. And now you're the executive director at Georgetown, in addition to being an author, the executive director at Georgetown University of the Global Social Enterprise Initiative. Wow. Um, and then tell us what that is. And so Global Social Enterprise Initiative, or GSEI, is at the business school at Georgetown. And it was founded by Bill Novelli, um, another kind of pioneering advocate and enterprising guy. He's, he founded Porto Novelli, the global um, communications firm, and, and ran AARP, a he very ran large AARP. nonprofit for quite a while. And he also uh, was the founding president of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, so the organization that really probably more than any other has helped put together the coalition that's driven down smoking rates in this country to their lowest ever, 15% for adults, six under 6% for youth. And we can talk more about how that change happened. But um, so GSEI, we, we, you know, we're at this place at the business school, it's interesting, Georgetown is a Jesuit university, and it's grounded in this value that business is in service to society. You know, it's not just for profit, it's for people and the planet, too. And so we kind of sit at the intersection of how do you make a profit and create social and environmental impact, right? How do you do well by doing good? And it doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And and so we research and write books, we have classes, and we um, work with different companies to try and help them realize this vision of doing well by doing good. So uh, a big project we have right now going with Nestle, for instance, is trying to figure out how food companies and restaurants can help drive down obesity and overweight rates in the U.S., which has become a growing ec epidemic. Yeah. And the role that companies have and the responsibility they have and not just put it all on individuals. So at least this is something that you kind of live and breathe because you're yes. involved in a number of community events. We were talking on the way over here about uh, 
participating at the Share Strength No Kid Hungry Dinner just a month or so ago yes. in Washington, D.C., and I asked you if you had fun, and I think you said, like, I are did. you kidding? I mean, why is that important to you as a, as a business person and as a, as a kind of a business leader? So I think it's important to stay grounded or to find whatever keeps your feet on the ground. Not that I'm, like, so great or high-flying or anything like that, but being a part of, I think, events that you all kind of create and develop, it reminds me of how we're so connected. I think we all can easily get caught up in our lives and whatever it is that we're doing, and we may forget those who might be less seen in our communities. Mm -hmm. And I, although would love to be, am not a mother, so I don't have children, so that may not be something that's at the forefront of my mind every day. And being active with you all reminds me that there, there is a problem out there. It is a unnecessary nationwide struggle, and it's a problem that's fixable. Childhood hunger should not be something that is happening in our country. There is, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you guys talk about this a lot, but there's so much food waste, and there's just so many different things that could be done so that this isn't happening. I just, I really can't imagine why we still have this problem. So whenever I get overwhelmed thinking about how great a problem it is or how big it is, it it puts a sense of ease to know that there is something that I can do. I can show up and do what I'm good at. I am good at being in a kitchen. I'm good at baking and, and creating things that people enjoy. And it really costs me nothing to just lend a hand and be available to do whatever it is that you all ask of me, except for that bike ride. That bike ride is absurd. I just... We do a 300-mile bike ride, and there will oh come a time when you will be ready to do the ride. So this is a, we do a ride called uh, Chef Cycle, which is uh, 100 miles a day for three days with mostly chefs and colleagues and people that uh, Elise knows and a couple old guys like me who, <laughs> whose pitches that if I can do it, anybody can. Um, but yeah, we'll get you. Okay, that's pretty convincing. I'm not going to lie. Uh. I was just going to say, you know, you were in our office not long ago with a group of other chefs and being sort of message and um, media trained, I think, to go mm -hmm. up to the Hill and yeah. talk about the issues that really matter to all of us. And one of the things that we've found, you know, which amazes me to this day is, you know, we started the organization based on this idea that everybody has a strength to share. And if you give them a easy way to do it, you give them a vehicle to do it. Most people will. Yeah. Great. And, and that's, you know, it's as powerful today as it was 30 years ago. And so from, you know, I know instinctively that if we have the opportunity to get in front of people, mm -hmm. you know, 10 people, six of them are going to join the organization or 20 yeah. people, 12 of them are going to join the organization. So, um, you know, just to your point, you know, we found each other yeah. somehow and we feel really lucky about that. We yes. feel really fortunate that we did. Thank you so much. It's an entirely mutual feeling, actually, probably more so on my side. But I just, again, I, I can't simplify it enough. If I can show up and make the people who believe in what it is that you are doing satisfied by the end of the evening, by giving them something sweet and making them have the most positive feeling about coming to your events and giving to the fundraisers and doing whatever it is that they can do to help with this fight, put me to work. So at least that night, one of our honorees was Jose Andreas. Yes, it was. Um, who we were honoring for his work 
globally um, as oh. well as here in the U.S. And I, and you're you're you've just broken into a big smile. I was going to ask you: Are there <laughs> others in the industry that have been uh, mentors to you, or oh. inspiring to you, or in terms of both their you know their own business success, but their role in the community? How do you think about that? Okay, mentors, no. Inspiring, yes. Yeah. No, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of great people in the culinary world. Most recently, thanks to you guys, I made a new friend, Jason Alley. Oh yeah, Rick so great. For, uh, oh, man. whose most recent restaurant that he yes. opened up is a what we call a community wealth enterprise. Uh, all the profits go to work in Back the community. The, I think yep. to the food bank actually in Richmond, yes. Virginia. And he which hires is pretty cool. I think I it's his say, fifth or sixth restaurant. He's really adamant about lifting up his community. Yeah. I mean, to hear about his. I mean, he grew up in the rural part. To hear about growing up in the outskirts of Richmond and things that they had to do, and it's humbling. And I, I, I kind of hate that word as it comes out of my mouth, but it is incredibly fitting. I can't imagine that because I came from a very stable family. But that passion for food and for people is where we connected. And he got to be my teammate when we went on Capitol Hill to speak to our legislators about continuing support or upping funding for SNAP um, and the Summer Meals Program. SNAP being the food stamp program. Yes. Yep. yep. We uh, we got to talk about why it was so important and uh, about the very real, um, very valid fears that a lot of school children have being that they are most likely provided their meals at school. And so when summer times hit, they may be going without meals and uh, they might be only be able to count on like one meal a day. And a lot of children cannot get to the centers where they say they're they have like a like feeding centers where you can get food and things like that. It's not always accessible. And uh, to his point, he was like, for rural children, going 20 miles in to where it's more of a city center is just, that just doesn't happen. Most of the parents and the people who are in these programs, they're working long hours, multiple jobs. Um, They're often left with like elderly and uh, family members who care for them the best they can. And it's just not a reality to ask 73-year-old grandma with dual cataracts to get behind the wheel and drive me in. Well, so, you know, as you're talking, one of the things I'm, I'm, I've got my hands on, Leslie Crutchfield's book, How Change Happens, and one of the things I'm thinking is so important about this book, Leslie, is as we're talking about these efforts that we're all engaged in, and we've got people like Elise who make, you know, such an effort to have an impact in their community. One of the points of your book, if I understand it, is that um, our, our really big social problems are too big and too challenging for any one organization, any one leader to solve on their own. And, and uh, one of the things that um, this book really lifts up is the notion that the most effective and the most impactful organizations uh, are not just building uh, great organizations, they're building a broader movement that engages lots of stakeholders, some like them, some uh, disparate or, or, or not like them. So talk a little bit about uh, why that was an important uh, thesis for you and what some of the research has showed in terms of, you know, for those of us who are uh, inspired by Elisa's work, inspired by the work of Share Our Strength, how do we get that to the next level? Well, <clears throat> definitely with the complexity of the problems we face, whether globally, you know, with climate and epidemics or in this country or even right here in Washington, D.C. Um, we're sitting across the river from one of the most impoverished communities in, in the U.S. and right, we're right here in the nation's capital. Um, with with only 8% of eligible voters voting in the last mayoral election. Did you see that? 
my really? Gosh. Yeah, which was just shocking to well, me. Eight percent? You mean from from Anacostia? From the uh, yes, from Anacostia. From Anacostia. Only eight <clears> percent <throat> of eligible voters in that community voted in the last mayoral primary. I mean, it's, you know, it's just the disconnection is terrifying, really. I think. But I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. So you know, you look at. You know, Bill Gates, he's pouring billions into trying to solve global health problems. But he'll say, you know, my billions are a drop in the bucket compared to the vast complexity and the enormity of the problems that we're trying to solve. So you need government getting behind these issues. You need companies not resisting, but actually actively participating. And most importantly, you need nonprofits and individuals, you know, residents of the neighborhoods um, that are suffering from, whether it's hunger or poverty or more. Um, And it's the combination of grassroots activism from individuals, um, nonprofits like Share Our Strength that help coordinate and orchestrate and put all the pieces together so you get kind of a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. Um, And then, you know, we look a lot at the role that industry can play, you know, in classic like movement theory, you think of activists rising up against, you know, corporate wrongdoing. And that was a thing for a while, and that continues to happen. But what we see more and more is that companies are stepping forward and saying, you know, how can we be part of the solution, right? Whether we make innovative products, we can advocate and share our strengths, the way that you work with chefs and restaurateurs to um, share what their talent and skill is and raise money and awareness for hunger. Um, and all that helps, but you also then need to go and advocate to policymakers um, and at the local, state, and national level. And in this book, How Change Happens, we look at how some of the most successful movements um, have succeeded and also why some don't. You know, So we ask questions like, how is it since the turn of this century, we've gotten to a place in the United States where we've slashed drunk driving rates in in half, right? No one would dare let a friend drive drunk, right, these days. Allowed LGBT marriage. We have marriage equality. Um, We've abandoned smoking, right? So Mm -hmm. smoking rates are lowest ever. No single social change has saved more lives or prevented more disease and suffering in this century than the tobacco control movement. And that was done uh, separate from government? In a way, right? I it mean, was, did government it was play any role in that at all? That was in that was kind of changing hearts and minds. It was it was a, a combination of things, and and just to add one more idea into the mix, we've massively expand gun rights. Um, the ownership, access to guns, um, has never been greater because yeah. of the very successful gun rights movement. And then we looked at okay, so why has gun rights been so successful, and then the gun safety movement? until very recently, lost ground, right? Um, and why is it that we have, um, we were able to solve the acid rain problem in North America, but now we're stuck on carbon. So we're asking all these questions. And and, and what are the answers? <laughs> well, no, I mean, use gun right, use the gun issue for an example. I was going to ask you, first of all, what's kind of the gold standard for you in terms of, uh, you know, an, an effort to, um, to create a movement to social change, maybe campaign for tobacco-free kids, probably campaign to tobacco near free the top of that list. At the top, freedom to marry, which was the yeah. campaign. That but use the dichotomy of the gun issue, the paradox. You know, so we've, you know, we've, you know, the the pro-gun side has been very effective in making gun rights more liberal. Uh, the, the gun safety movement has 
not achieved its goals, what's one done right and the other not? So the number one reason, in my opinion, and my four years of research with our team at Georgetown that looked into this, is that successful movements turn grassroots gold. They what's invest and nurture in local leaders who care passionately about the issue, whether it's because their child was killed in a drunk driving accident and they don't want that to happen to anybody else's child, or they want to protect and expand their right to own a gun. So and grassroots organizing as a priority versus sort of just like-minded leaders all talking in the same yeah, Direction, so there's right? like grass okay. roots and there's grass tops. So at the grass tops, you have elites. Like I mean, you need both. People but. here in D.C., you know, having lunches and working on K Street. Okay. Um, and that can move things to an extent. But what the NRA and the gun rights movement has done so successfully is invested power. They have nearly 5 million members. They have more than 100,000 active volunteers. And any time in, in a local town council meeting, if a issue a resolution comes up related to guns there's 40 nra members that show up and speak up and demand that their council people obey the second amendment and until recently the gun control movement at the local and grassroots level has not had an equal voice so and here's and here's, even though polls say, it, say yeah. it's larger right so like yeah. the the nra activists are in the minority uh, probably, but they're more active. Is that fair exactly ninety-seven percent uh, to the latest Quinnipiac polls show that Americans want tighter gun laws. We we want things like universal background checks, and that's Democrats and Republicans, non-gun owners and gun. Yeah, owners. even NRA members right. even want NRA some members. Can reasonable controls. Right? So, would you say that I'm very interested? First of all, this is a very transparent. Uh, what's it called application like it's it's very clear i get it the the grass top versus the grassroots so would you say that maybe the liberal left democrat they maybe fall in line and depend too much on the grass tops the people whose job it is to make these changes and they're not in on the ground floor doing that passioned work that equal to those who are right alt-right, whatever you want to call it, uh, NRA supporters who show up to those meetings every month, in and out, without a doubt, and say, this is our Second Amendment, Second Amendment right, and we want this and we want that. Would you say that might be the problem? It sounds like it from what you're saying, but this is something I've never thought about with an expert, so I'm picking your brain now. Well, it's it's a really interesting question, and I would say two things. One is you can't just make a monolithic, you know, with a broad brush, say all liberal and progressive causes are this way and mm -hmm. all extreme right Tea Party mm -hmm. conservative causes are that way. Because in our lifetimes, in the last few decades, we've done everything from allow gay marriage to massively expand gun rights mm -hmm. and abandon smoking. So it's all over the political map. Yeah. And so what the difference is that the movements and the leadership whether they're conservative or liberal, you know, progressive or extreme alt-right, mm -hmm. have figured out how to lead and catalyze these movements. And that's what we, that's what we looked at. So for gun rights, in, in the case of guns, I'll give you two numbers. In 2012, that was the time of the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre. So 26 students and educators were killed that day. At that moment in time, 
the NRA had nearly 5 million members. The largest gun safety group at the time had how many members? Less than 500,000. So for decades, the gun control movement was only one-tenth the size of the NRA if you just looked at the grassroots base. Now, that might be surprising if you don't really follow gun violence prevention and these issues, except for in the media, because the media has a liberal bias. 97% of Americans want tighter gun laws. So what the public wants and what the laws are giving us are, are the opposite. And that's because now after two, 2012, you had the advent of Every Town for Gun Safety. Um, Shannon Watts, a mom out of Indianapolis, had four kids, was a stay-at-home mom, was just, you know, outraged after the Newtown shooting. She grew up in Colorado, had was a student at the time of Columbine. And she started a Facebook page and said, we, we need a movement. We, moms need to get together and protect our kids. And then that merged up with Mayor Bloomberg's Mayors Against Illegal Guns. So by 2014, just three years ago, every town got going. And within the last three years, it's grown to 4 million members. And then after the tragedy in Parkland earlier this year, and with the activism of the students from Marjorie Douglas, now every town has more members than the NRA. So it's the first time where you've had mm. an equal and opposite grassroots. So there's a chance now. We're, a we're in a more of a position. point that we could be approaching. I, I think that if you just look at that factor alone, there's more of a chance now to go back to where we were. Because you got to remember, and Billy, you come out of politics. In 1993, we had a federal government and a, we had a federal assault weapons ban. Right. Yeah, the, I remember that. The, the, yeah. the, the policy was more in line with what the country as a whole wanted. And then that expired. And during that time, the NRA got very smart and they started building up their grassroots and yeah. realized, have you ever wondered why there's not ever been a big gun rights march on Washington? That's a good point. Why don't they do that? Right. Because they march at the state capitol and the local level and they put all of their energy and activism into the states and that's where change happens. Right. You know, Obama has this great quote yeah. about after the Supreme Court ruled in favor of gay marriage a couple yeah. of years ago. You know, change doesn't come from Washington. Change comes to, to Washington. Washington. So, if, And, and the one big gun control uh, rally that we did have was in Washington, right? Yeah, I'm not saying that's wrong. No, you, but, you, you, but, it's, but it's clear the difference well, when you talk the, about it, when you explain it that way. It makes of, a lot of sense. The things we've seen uh, at Share Our Strength is, you know, about 10 years ago, we completely... Uh, pivoted to focusing at the local level mm -hmm. uh, with states and with governors and with mayors and the progress of the No Kid Hungry campaign has been enormous. Uh, it, you know, One of the things we realized was that Washington was paralyzed. There was very little that we could get done here anyhow and it doesn't, it rarely has to do with the merits. It's not because an idea is good or bad. It's because both parties reflexively oppose what the other party's for. And we realized that uh, governors had the ability in particular to um, to implement the programs that the federal government had passed 10, 20, 30, or 40 years ago having to do with school lunch, school breakfast, all these important nutrition programs for kids. And as we started to talk to governors, they were like, yeah, I, I could do that. You know, they, they weren't as political and they had an executive um, kind of instinct to actually get things done. So for us, it changed everything. And we still got a lot of colleague organizations who do very important work on Capitol Hill, and, and we, we work in kind of collaboration with that. But our focus shifted to the state level, and we saw exactly the kind of 
results that you've described, Leslie. So very powerful. Um, I'd like to get a sense from each of you of uh, what comes next. Is there uh, another bakery in the works? Uh, <laughs> is there another book in the works? Leslie, how about you? Elise, um, um, I mean, your your bakery is still pretty young, right? Winnie's yes. Bakery is only six years old or so? Yes, that is entirely true. So I might actually need to pick Leslie's brain. Um, I have, over the last year and a half, uh, entered into the realm of writing. Uh, I write for Edible DC Magazine, yep. and I recently became a contributor for Eaton Magazine. For which, um, which magazine? Eaton. Eaton? It okay. is a historically inspired food. Uh, what does she call it? A journal? Um, it's really cool. Um, and you just find it online? Uh, no, it's a print. The, oh, it's I print? mean, they, I'm sure they do do online, but it is a print publication okay. as well. Local, something local? or mm -hmm. They're yeah. both DC publications. Um, I met Susan because um, I, I think, and, and I'm trying to remember how it all came together, but I was doing something... And they were like, Edible DC, and I went to a party, and I'm sure I'm missing a piece, but knowing Susan, Abel, my editor, and working with that publication led me to Wendy Catbaggin, who works at your organization. Yes. And she's one of those people who's of her word. You meet a lot of people who say a lot of things, and it, they're nice people, they're good people, but it doesn't necessarily mean they'll follow up on the things that they say. And that's okay. That's fine. Wendy is not that person. Wendy is follow through from beginning to past the end. I mean, let's circle back around and see how that person's doing. And uh, I got to talk with her and I was just really excited to meet someone at the event who really, really loved food uh, and who was really excited about their job. When, when she told me, she lit up. And uh, I was just supposed to be taking a photo of her friend and she. And uh, we ended up talking for quite some time about the work that we both did. And I think that passion uh, came across for both of us. And so that led me to you all. And to get back around to my first point, I started to venture into writing because uh, I love everything about my job. But um, I am a cancer survivor and I'm still in treatment and it's just really laborious to be in the kitchen every day. Mm. And so I needed something that would keep me connected to the thing that I'm most passionate about. And uh, I decided that recipe development was probably something that I should be looking into. And so after reaching out to friends, uh, I have a friend who I met via Instagram of all places, uh, Amanda Fredrickson. She is the former, one of the former uh, recipe developers for William Sonoma. I reached out to her and she gave me some guidance and she became this wonderful friend who has been a supporter at my back at every turn. And she gave me kind of the start and the pointers of how I should venture into this. And then that led me to Tim Ebner, who writes for Thrillist and Eater DC and uh, Washingtonian Magazine. And just all these wonderful people who were working on the writing aspect of food. And to see the things that they were doing and the passion in their writing, I was like, maybe this is something that I should invest my time into. And so with that, I started writing for these publications and I'm now working on a cook stories book, uh, speaking about like the inspirations uh, that I have uh, in the kitchen. And I've broken them up into four sections, uh, 
joy, loss, healing, and growing. And uh, each Hallmark will discuss different recipes and what the inspiration was or what was happening here. And, like these cookies that I brought for you guys was that would go in loss. Um, but uh, it's been really interesting. So I'm, I've been writing and uh, I'm also developing a collaborative food creative slash chef kind of series uh, where I meet up with my, my, my food friends and we cook together. It's a two-part thing. I develop one part of the recipe, they develop the other part. And we come together and we talk about food and we talk about what it means to us to be connected in this way. Um, my friend uh, Justin, I mean, he goes by DC Food Porn on Instagram, but uh, <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. Yeah. You would think, I, I just, I remember I met him at a Spoon University talk in American University and he was just a skinny kid and he came and he was just like so laid back and I remember I'd done research of who I was going to be on the panel with before I went in and this little skinny college kid had like 125,000 Instagram followers and I was just like, who is this kid? Tim Ebner and I were sitting on the panel. I'm an incredibly young person. I'm only 28, but we're older than these college kids, and they're coming in heavy hitters. There's another girl, <laughs> pardon me for saying, but skinny bitch bowl, and she has all of her thousands followers. She comes with a. This that's her name? I'm, uh, her that's name what you're is call- Naomi. <laughs> that's just what you call her. That's what you call her. <laughs> <laughs> this is clarifying. Yes. No. Uh, <laughs> she is rather petite. We, we can edit yeah. anything. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, she comes and she has this great <laughs> tailored suit on. And I'm just like, okay, I clearly have to up my game. I've been out of the college arena for quite some time now. And Tim and I just look at each other and we're just like, what is happening? It was just such a great evening. And I got to sit there and be before people and talk about the growing social trends in food and how it's become this incredible commodity and everyone wants to have their foot in it. Everyone's trying to have their own angle, their own spin. And I presented mine, which was ever-changing. But um, yeah, I think all of those relationships have culminated into the things that I am looking to direct my business into now and I've been really lucky that those people are still a part of my life I still am with I'm not with Justin I'm still friends with Justin and we're still working together we've worked together previously um, on a really great beignet recipe and then you know Tim has been kind of a sounding board whenever I need to kind of take a new approach to expanding my writing and Amanda always gives me inspiration about you know stretching a recipe Taking it further, making it better. Um, and how many, how many do you have working at Winnie's Bakery? So we go up during the busy season. Primarily, it's just me and like a team of three. And then during busy season, we hire part-time workers. And it could be probably somewhere around like six people. We're a small operation. We're not Jason Alley. We don't have like a restaurant running like a staff of 30. But we're in there and we're grinding and it's just me and... You know, just showing up and and doing my best and just trying to make really good food, really, really good sweets. Um, You're doing that. (laughs) We know we know that from this morning. Thank you. You know, when we started when we started the organization, there were like you know three or four chefs whose names people Mm -hmm. would know around the country, right? 
And boy, have things changed yeah. just in terms of the way food is, you were just saying, mm-hmm. the transformation of um, the social mm-hmm. meaning of food and yeah. how people have a brand. I mean, you weren't saying this about yourself, but when you were talking yeah. about how you're dividing up your your book about, yeah. I think you were saying, you know, loss and love and mm-hmm. connection. I mean, those are things that would you would never hear about, right, in yeah. food 10 years ago, yeah. 15 years ago. Right. We had on... Um, uh, the owner of the owner and founder of Knightsbridge Restaurant Group yesterday, Ashok Bajaj, oh, wow. who's got From like Rasika. Bindas and Rasika and uh, the new Sababa in Cleveland Park and a bunch of restaurants, Bombay Club. And he was talking about, which I loved, he was talking about he wanted to start a restaurant where you had small plates. And mm-hmm. the reason he liked that idea is because when you have small plates instead of an entree, you you and your dining partner are mm-hmm. talking about the food. Oh, wow. You're going back and forth. You're looking at the menu. What are you going to share? What do you like? When yeah. you're ordering an entree, that doesn't happen. No. I thought that was Well, the whole idea of small great. plates and sharing yeah. food is relatively new. It was something that Jose was just Andre not done. started it. Yeah. Were, he brought it here. You ordered yours and, you know, I ordered mine yeah. and we ate, yeah. you know, our totally own different food concept, it's a right? Totally yeah. different. I, I love it too because as a non foodie and not a chef, but I like to <laughs> eat food. Then you're food. I, yeah. I, I always felt like an entree was a big commitment. And oh. I had to choose, and yeah. I didn't like having and to choose. And you want to try a bunch of things. So yeah. now it's it's a good thing for me. But I'm just reflecting on, as you were sharing all that's happened to you, despite <laughs> how young you are, you know, as a cancer survivor, somebody who's struggled with a disability like hearing loss, started a business, <laughs> I'm struck with, you're an old soul for Thank being you. a millennial. Um, and it's it's just amazing. You're very kind. I think it, it it was just born out of necessity, honestly. I just realized a lot of things, and I'm very close with my family. I realized that not only was it not, because I, I was diagnosed with my first cancer uh, when I was 18, and I finished treatment around 20. Um, you know, it, it, me going into the traditional workforce was just not realistic. It, it wasn't something I was ever excited about either especially since my initial aspiration was to uh, be an actress. And I was very serious about it when I was in my adolescence. But um, it also became a reality that this may not be my path. Um, And so the practical solution was to take some time and figure out where the energy that I did have, where was that going to go? And so I think it was just me sitting down and being honest with myself and being like, I am constantly in the kitchen. When I'm in the hospital, I'm thinking about the kitchen. When I feel well enough, I'm in the kitchen. Um, You know, whether I'm happy, sad, sleepy, bored, I'm constantly always led back to the kitchen. And, uh, well, and that's how you know you found your passion. There's a writer, there's a great quote by the writer Gloria Steinem who talked about how she became a journalist and a writer. And she said, I, when I was writing and reporting, it was the only time I didn't wish I was doing something else. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And yep. sounds like for you, food That's and the great. kitchen is the time uh, you wish you weren't doing anything else but that. So you know you're true. And you're I, lucky. It's Not everybody comes to that in their yeah. life. Yeah. They really don't. Yeah. You know, we're lucky that we're doing what we want to do every day. Yes. And that that's our happy place is exactly. what our profession and our personal life. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a blessing because a lot of people don't have that. I, I think, see that a lot in my friends. Yeah. Debbie and I certainly share that at Share Strength, although the other side of that, 
um, which I've mentioned once before. I'm scared. Is, in a sta- <laughs> at a staff survey, uh, somebody once wrote, just because Billy and Debbie have no boundaries between their work and their personal life doesn't mean that I want to live that way. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Because we do. I mean, we think about yeah. share strength all the time, and it's as much fun for us as it is work. Yeah. But I love for others, it's, you know, it's kind of like, okay, enough. Um, <laughs> less, um, we got to wrap up, but I want to hear what's next for you, whether there's going to be another book. And there's one aspect of this book uh, that we didn't touch on that I just wanted you to mention because I, I feel like it's so important. And it's this kind of uh, term that you've coined called leaderful about um, how leaders um, are the most effective. So talk about that and then tell us what's next for you. Well, be leaderful is this insight that came from studying all these movements and both successful and, and less successful. And it comes out of some of the writings of Ella Baker, who was probably one of the Um, most influential female civil rights activists um, coming out of the 50s and 60s. And, you know, she believed that strong people don't need strong leaders, right? You don't need a strong man from the top Mm -hmm. who um, dictates what needs to happen. It's it's more about how you push power out and letting everyday individuals lead. So, you know, when, when Candy Leitner founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving, shortly after her daughter was killed on a Sunday morning walking to a church carnival by a drunk driver, you know, she founded MAD. And um, she was a mom. She was a real estate agent. She wasn't necessarily, you know, she didn't have a law degree. She didn't work on Capitol Hill. She wasn't, there was nothing in her background that would pretend that she would go and create this big policy and social change movement that would truly change how we behave and think and um are in America. Um, and she did it by starting chapters, you know, saying to different cities and towns, if your child or your family member, or your friend was killed, to go and talk to the judges, talk to the police. Um, here's a toolkit for how to do that. She didn't go and set up shop and try and raise money. It was empowering others. And, you know, when we studied Share Our Strength for my first book, Forces for Good, which was all about what makes great nonprofits great, not entire movements, but individual organizations. And, you know, what Share Strength was doing was trying to orchestrate all these different players under a big tent to care about hunger and push for food. So you weren't just doing advocacy, right? You were involving the business community, the bakers and the the restaurateurs, and how can they share their strength? And you were bringing your political know-how and individuals into the movement. And that's and leaderful leaders do that, right? And the opposite of a leaderful leader would be, um, well, there's kind of two extremes. On the one hand, you could be too top-down, too autocratic, trying to kind of dictate like a CEO of a company or a commander of a military unit. That doesn't work in social change um, because most of the things are out of your span of control. Um, on the other extreme, you can have movements that are leaderless, they're chaotic. You know, remember Occupy Wall Street? Mm-hmm. There was protests up in Manhattan and there was, you know, the call for the 99%. But then it kind of fizzled. Um, the message might have carried through, for instance, in the progressive campaigns of Bernie Sanders. and But it, it kind of fizzled. And they were trying to be leaderless. They had no hierarchy. There was no one person in charge. Was that intentional? There was an intentional Because commitment. they thought that it was better to... To do it the to way be you're describing, completely egalitarian. Yeah. Yeah. So then everybody had a say, and they had more than two dozen different demands. Um, and and the thing, leaderful movements, which kind of right are balanced in the center, 
say, okay, we can't get everything done, but what is one or two progress steps that we could make? And then they find a way to get everybody in the movement to move in that direction. So I'll give you an example out of the gay marriage movement. So when some of the leaders were pushing for LGBT marriage equality, uh, this was a couple of decades ago, there was a lot of dissension across the LGBT community. You know, many members didn't want traditional marriage because it was too traditional. We yes. don't want to be like straight people. We, we're we queer. You know, we're, we're proud. Yeah. And so there was that camp. And then there was another camp that said, we don't really care about full marriage. We just want civil unions. We want relationship recognition. We want to be able to visit our partner if they have cancer in the hospital and not be turned away, right? So, so they had to work out across this big spectrum of ideologies within the movement. I call them adversarial allies. You're all on the same team, but you've got a different play you think you want to go after. And so the beauty of Freedom to Marry, which was um, founded by Evan Wolfson, a, a social entrepreneur and advocate, um, and he got found ways with other leaders in the movement to allow, you know, the camp that wanted to go for civil unions. And this is how they did it. Going back to your point about the going to the governors with the no kid hungry fight. They caught they cut up the country into this rubric 10, 10, 10, 20 equals 50. Right. So instead of thinking of the United States as a big monolithic mash of 50. Let's take 10 states and if they're really liberal, we'll, we'll go for full marriage. So in Massachusetts and New York. And then they said, let's take 10 states and just try and get relationship recognition. And they said, we'll take the balance of states and just try and get discriminatory laws off the books. So they weren't really going for anything too progressive. They were just trying to get the ultra conservative stuff yeah. one baby step forward. But the whole notion was that if you could get the entire country moving in one step in the same direction, not necessarily the same step, but in right. tune, then you can achieve big things and they, they won because of that. Um, I think, um, so it's about leaderful leaders. They're more like a conductor of an orchestra, getting all of the different players to play the same tune, but not telling them exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what groups like Share Our Strength do. Yeah, I mean, it's not um, very dissimilar from the way we you know, launched the No Kid Hungry campaign, right? Where we said, um, and to quote, who we quote a lot, Jonathan Kozel, who said, pick something big enough to matter but achievable, small enough to win. Yeah. And so, you know, No Kid Hungry, out of the huge, out of the larger movement of ending hunger is where we put our efforts yeah. and brought slowly but surely the hunger community around, even though there's a lot of other priorities in the hunger community. It could be, you know, the elderly or it could be families in general, but not focus specifically on kids the way we are. So, I mean, hearing you talk feels like it aligns so much, much with our with our no kid hungry strategy. And it's really hard because by choosing one path, we're choosing kids, yes, for this moment. Mm -hmm. You're not saying no to elderly, but you, you're being strategic. And, and you gain you gain sorry to interrupt you, but you gain success and power for the next fight. Yes. So you have right. to think about it kind of sequencing. We'll we'll, we'll go for this now and then we get some traction, we can go for the next thing. And that's very hard for people on the same side of a cause yeah. to get behind because you want your, you know, issue to be front and center. And it's about letting go. A lot about leadership that I found from studying great leaders like Billy and you and um, Wendy and Alan, all the, the folks in our books is um, great leaders let go 
okay. of power. You have to give power away to get more yeah. done. So concessions can be powerful. Yes. We're going to leave it there. Um, yeah. Are you writing, except to ask, are you writing another book? Three babies, three books. So I'm going to take you're, a break for a, a break. little while okay. from babies and books. Well, this book's brand new, How Change Happens. Um, I recommend it. As somebody who's worked in the nonprofit sector for a long time, anybody who cares about any type of social change ought to be reading How Change Happens. Leslie Crutchfield, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, and Elise Smith, you didn't just bring a book. You brought jacked up snickerdoodles. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love that you thank, used the name. Thank you. I love the name. Um, you, you've tossed out lots of interesting names today, but oh, jacked up snickerdoodles <laughs> is one I'm going to stick with. So thanks for being with us and congratulations on Winnie's Bakery. Thank you very much and thank you for having me both. I great. really appreciate um, it. And uh, as always, it's Debbie Shore and Billy Shore. Yeah. Uh, thankful to our producer, Woody Paul Whittle, who makes this show happen, and to Kelly Griffin as well, who's been uh, an essential part of Add Passion and Stir. Thanks for listening. <laughs>